I would also like you to give me some leeway today. I have been misjudging the length of my messages. Um, sometimes I, I have too many notes left over at the end, and they're not... I need to say everything I want to say today, okay? So I'm warning you right now. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be... It possibly might end at noon, but there's a good chance it won't, okay? So let's just... Let's just listen to the Word of God and enjoy it. This will be the third message in this series. And this has been a blessing for me to study. I am just praying that it's going to be a blessing to you. It has been stated in the scriptures that we've read that God has promised that it would be. There are actually seven Beatitudes listed in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we have already looked at one. I would like to read now the scriptures that we're going to look at. They're going to include the verses we've already looked at, but remember, I said I might preach them again, okay? And so we're going from verse 1 to verse 8. The new material today will be from verses 4 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servants, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. This is the main doctrine I want you to consider today. I want you to keep this in your mind as I speak. Christ is ruling exactly the way he has planned to rule. It has been very popular to say concerning this book, that Christ came to present a kingdom, but he failed and he went to plan B. And I want to put that to rest. I just, I want to say that that's not true and we're going to go and build upon that. Because Christ did not fail to establish his kingdom. He did not. He did not fail. He is ruling exactly the way he desires to rule it and exactly the way he planned to rule it. So that's the doctrine today. We will have an extended review, but there will be a lot of new material in it. A lot of new material in the review. Last week we looked at two questions to help us guide us in the right direction to approach the study of the apocalypse. The apocalypse meaning the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the two goals that we have. How do we understand the apocalypse? And what is the purpose of the apocalypse? We address those questions. And I want you to consider 
the books that I have men been mentioning. Every once in a while, I'll mention a book, mention a word, uh, you know, where, where it comes from. Most of my ideas are not new. I've read them from people. I've listened to them. Uh, there is one book that I've been looking at by Simon uh, Kistemacher, and uh, uh, I've been using a lot of his materials as far as how to divide the sections of the book up. But for the most part, I'm afraid to tell you that I do have some original ideas, but I, they are not wild, okay? They're not against what God's people have believed. They've just been what I've been able to observe. We looked at the idea that the book itself can be considered from a, a viewpoint of the preterist. These are the ones that believe that everything has been physically fulfilled. Historically, it's already been done. I believe that there is some merit to that because some of the things have been done that way. We looked at the idea that there are some who are historicists who says that we look at history books and we can see how all the events can be found in the history books. And I also agree with some parts of that because it's obvious that some of those things are seen in the apocalypse, but not all of them. Some people like to think that most of this book is still in the future. Okay? Like from chapter 4 on, that's still in the future. I'm not a futurist all the way, but I am in some ways. The, the judgment has not happened yet. The Lord is coming back. That has not happened yet. The Lord will come back and there will be a day of judgment. And so in that sense, I am a futurist. I'm more of an idealist where it says that the book of Revelation in the, book of the, in the visions of the apocalypse teach genuine, real lessons that allows us to see the events and say this, well, it looks like this. God has told us not to worry and to take courage, and so we should. I apply the, the simple rule of this. If the shoe fits, wear it. If it meets your need, God has provided that to you. The other ways of approaching this book is by the hermeneutical interpretation of what we do with the millennium found in the end of the book. The premillennialist will say that Christ will return and then establish a kingdom for a thousand years. After that, it will then be destroyed, or a rebellion, and then the judgment. Postmillennialism is the idea that the church is given power to reform the world and make it a place of theocracy where peace and God's rule is here by the efforts of the church. And then Christ will then come back and take his place on the throne. And then there is the idea that's been coined all millennialists, meaning that there is no real millennium, but I disagree with that, really. There is a millennium. It happens to be where Christ is ruling in the hearts of his people right now. And that one day, Christ ruling in the hearts of his people, there will be a judgment, and then there will be that the eye can see his physical kingdom that will last forever. So, those, uh, that is uh, the review. But I want to go back and take another review with new material. The first eight verses contain four different sections. The first of which we'll call the prologue, which is in verses 1 through 3. And we, we read this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by the sending of his angels to, certain, to, to his servant John. Now, the declaration that this is a revealing or an uncovering of the mystery of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there is something prophetic in this, and I'm using my words carefully. 
It is not apocalyptic to say that Jesus Christ is coming back. It is prophetic. See, there's no mystery about it. It is a warning, and it is clearly stated. The truth revealed in this apocalypse will be evident very soon and will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. The images that are found in the apocalypse will be seen until Christ comes back. But the idea that Christ is coming back is prophetic. There is a difference there. And it says, He who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw, John is now declaring that he is an eyewitness to these visions. He wasn't told what the visions were. He saw the visions. He is an eyewitness to the visions. He was told what prophecy to tell us. And they were put into letters sent to seven churches. Now, these seven churches were real churches. They weren't, you know, figments of his imagination. They weren't part of the apocalypse. They were in a part of the world called Asia Minor. We know today as Turkey. And if you went from the Isle of Patmos and landed on the shore of Asia Minor, you would travel like a mailman or like a, a mail carrier, I guess, these days, where you would go to the first church and then you would travel north to the next church, you would travel northeast to the next church, and then maybe east to the next church, and then southeast to the next church, in which you would travel like this, like a horseshoe, so that you would actually travel from one church to the next church. We wouldn't have to crisscross. And so the churches are listed in that order, and the churches, these churches were ideal in that every one of them had a real problem and a real blessing that the Lord is going to address. And so they will help us understand why the Lord gave those warnings and why he gave those blessings. And it says in verse number three, blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written for the time is near. It is near. It was near for them because they were there experiencing the very same problems that we are experiencing. Nero, Domitian, all the different type of persecutions. They needed it. The time was near. Even John in his epistle says, even now there is the spirit of Antichrist. And so these things were true then. They are true now. It says that it is at hand. That phrase itself means that it's close. You can have it within your hand. It is near. It was near to them. It is now near to us. Now, the next section is the greeting. This is the new material. Verses 4 and 5, just the first half of 5. It says, and I'm going to take it by sentence, not by verse. And so it's really just one sentence, verse 4 and half of 5. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. A very important phrase which we will cover. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, witness, and the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of kings on earth. This is the greeting of the letter to the seven churches. The idea of grouping them together will give us the idea that every church is allowed to read the letters given to the other churches. It's not as though it's a private, you know, seal it up, and only the people in Smyrna can read their letter. No, every one of them could read. And why would that be the case? Well, we may read in Ephesus that they left their first love. Well, that's probably true for the most part of that church. But there might be people in other churches that have done that also. And they need to read that too. It's like for us, 
I have to tell you, if the shoe fits, wear it. If you have left your first love, then listen what the Spirit says to this church. We need to be ready to receive what the Spirit says. It's sent with a declared intention that God is going to provide grace and peace to his recipients. Now we're going to see where it's from. This letter is, first of all, from the Apostle John. Easily, from John. However, the epistle also says, and it is from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now the first person you may bring to your mind is that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I must remind you of this. If you've seen the Father, you've seen Christ. If you've seen Christ, then you know who the Holy Spirit is. And there are three persons in the Godhead. There is the person of the Father. There is the person of the Son. There is the person of the Holy Spirit. And when we see a verse in Isaiah, in chapter 41, that says, Who in the world has done all these things? This is a paraphrase, my paraphrase. The answer is this. I am the one who have done this. I am the one who was and who is and who is to come. And you know who is speaking? Yahweh. God the Father. But even now, we have this identified as the one who is in charge of all things. Even now, in this um, address, we can see the triune God being addressed. And from the seven spirits before his throne... Now, you may say, well, surely that's not the Holy Spirit. There are not seven Holy Spirits. Well, I'm going to challenge you with this. God sent a letter to seven churches, and every church had special needs. Every church had their special sin, with the exception of two that God did not address. However, every church has their special blessing. God presented them with a special encouragement. And so when it comes to why did the Holy Spirit of God talk differently to, to the Ephesians? And why did the Holy Spirit of God speak differently to the church in, in, in Smyrna? Why does the Holy Spirit of God teach, you know, talk differently in, in addressing his truth to every individual? Do you see? The Spirit of God in this case was who he presented himself in their greatest need. God will present himself to you if you need comfort. If you need comfort, then behold, the Lord Jesus will send the Comforter to you. And the Lord will comfort you. The Holy Spirit will be the Spirit of comfort to you, teaching you about Christ, giving you the assurance, giving you the peace. If you're a person that's lost in their sin, He will be one that will come and look into your heart and show you who you are, that you might fear the Holy God. He is the God who comes in judgment. You see, but he's still the Spirit of the Lord, is he not? The seven spirits that go out to the seven churches is the Spirit of the living God. Because why? We are told to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so if the shoe fits, you wear it. If you need comfort, then the Holy Spirit will comfort you. If you need conviction of sin, he will do that. He will do what is needed for you. And then lastly, it says, it is from Jesus Christ. He is identified as the faithful witness, the first from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. This is who he is. Not who he's going to be, because he is already the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
and the ruler of kings on earth. Now we get to the last half of verse number five, and that is the beginning of the doxology, of the first doxology in the epistle um, given to the seven churches. He suddenly just kind of stops what, you know, what John is doing by saying, Greetings, and he stops in there, right in the middle of it, and he breaks into a doxology of praise. And that's what a doxology is, a statement of praise. And he suddenly just begins to say, well, this letter is from God, but to him who loved us and freed us from sin by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God and forever, it is to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He just had to stop and give God the praise. There's a sudden outburst of praise, you know, that, that reveals his praise to God. John is so very moved that God has love, you know, the type of love that God has for us, that he could not stop himself. John is overjoyed by the fact that he has freed us from our sins. Now, the freedom of our sins in this apocalyptic view is like the apex of what God has done. This book is going to tell us that God is in control of everything. Everything. Now I want you to imagine all the works of God. All of them. The moving of all the atoms and molecules. The moving of everything. Put them into one big tumbler. And then you pour it out. And then when they are poured out, the most important ones go to the top. And the lesser important ones go to the bottom. And which ones are the most important? Like, well, they all have to be true. God has to be in control of all things. But there is an order of what is going to be lifted to the top. And at the very top of all of God's ordained things to, for him to do will be the cross of Christ. And it's built upon everything. It's built upon all things. But if you destroy part of it, none of it is true. All of it is built upon the power of our God who was and is and is to come. And the apex and pinnacle of it is what our eyes will see when we look at the mountain of God and see that God has sent His Son Christ to die for our sins. And then we can rest upon this mountain of saying our foot, our feet are sure on the sure foundations of all that God has done. It is based upon how He has died for our sins. It is something that the book of Revelation begins with and ends with. He's overjoyed with the fact that our sins are covered by his blood. And now he is expanding upon this blessing because he's about to reveal in this letter that Christ has made us a kingdom. We are currently the citizens and ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ in this present evil world. And we have been made priests. Now, we went through the book of Hebrews, and we all know that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. There is only one who can take his own blood into the very um, uh, heart of God and then die for us and present his blood for our sins. He is alone, that person. But there's also another sense in which there is a priest that offers up offerings to God, offerings of service. I'm going to read a section from 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you care to go there, while I'm talking a little bit, you'd be welcome to follow along with that idea. Because within these verses, we're going to look at the idea that is explained very clearly in the book of Romans, where Paul says, 
offer up yourselves a sacrifice to God, which is well-pleasing in his sight, your service. Now, with that in mind, let's read what Peter says in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You say, well, I don't know what that has to do with being a priest or how that, what that has to do with us uh, understanding the apocalypse. It's this. The work that we will be involved in is not going to be um, what the world will recognize as a great achievement. The battles that we will fight will have to do with putting away malice and hypocrisy and envy within ourselves and preaching against sin. That is where the battle is. Like newborn infants long for the sincere spiritual milk that it may, that it may help you grow up into salvation. And a lot of people will read this and say, you mean we have to grow into salvation? Do we have to earn it like that? No, 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 no. It just means that those that are saved get to mature. That they grow up from an infant to a, to a toddler, to a young man or woman, and to an adult. And they need to hunger after the nourishment of truth that only comes from the Holy Spirit teaching us about Christ. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, do you see the nourishment? And, you, and you've tasted that God is good? As you come to Him, what? A living stone by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. We are now, he, you know, Peter's turning into a metaphor here. He's saying that we are like living stones, and these stones are being put together by God to create a temple. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has died for your sins, now He has making your submitted life an acceptable sacrifice. You living for the glory of God is now received because we have the blood of Christ on us. And this is the scriptures that he's quoting. For it stands in scripture, he's now quoting, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not to be put to shame. Now here comes his explanation. So the honor is for you who believe. But to those who do not believe, and he's starting to quote again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ has become the cornerstone of this temple that God is going to dwell in. And we are the stones that make up that temple. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who don't believe. They stumble because they disobeyed at the word that they were destined to do. Do not let that scare you, folks. It says right here that there are people that are destined to fall on that stone. Uh, you know, on the cornerstone. Do not let the world let, you know, do not let them decide how our God should be judged. Some people say, how can that be true that some people are destined to do this? Do not let the world become the standard of how you judge God. I'm giving you what this word is providing to us for comfort. We do not play this game by the world's rules. We must listen to what God is telling us. But instead, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into its marvelous light. Very much like one of the plagues 
that will come upon this world. There will be people cast into darkness, just like they did in Egypt. And I'm telling you, we'll get to the point when we start looking at the plagues that are from the hand of God himself that have been warned. They have been warned. The world has been warned like someone blowing a trumpet. Or shall we say like someone preaching the gospel and warning them about Christ's coming in judgment. And they say, does he have the right to have them destined to do this? He has the authority to do it. He has dominion to do it. Why? Because he is worthy. He has the seals. He is the only one that can break the seal that says, I have the authority to do this. And I'm warning them. And then comes the plagues. And what's plagued for one is a blessing to another. Remember, God's people live in Goshen. That's the place where they had light. But in Egypt, they had darkness. And in this very world, when God brings his judgment, the world will be in darkness still. But we are preaching the light. Do you see the difference? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know why? Because you've been translated into the kingdom of light. Now, Christ made us a kingdom of priests to God, his Father. This is just kind of, you know, still in the greeting, okay? And so we, we, we want to continue on. Remember, John has kind of suddenly went into a doxology, and he is now ending that up. And at the end of that doxology is this phrase, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us never forget the reality that, that can only be seen by the eyes of faith. And that is this. Christ is glorious and worthy. He is in his current reign as king over his kingdom. Christ certainly has dominion over the kingdom of his subjects. And we must remember this. This is not something that I'm making up that I just found in the book of Revelation. This is something that I know to be true from the Gospels. This is taught to us in the Gospels. Can you remember the night that they took our Lord Jesus Christ and put him through a mock trial and put him before the kings of this world? Stood him up before Pilate? Let's go back and remember this interchange between our Lord Jesus Christ and Pilate because it has to do with a king and kingdoms. From John chapter 18, verse number 33, we're going to read this interchange between Pilate, who was the leader, shall we say, the governor, and then Christ. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Now this is an important question when it comes to approaching the apocalypse and the prophecies that are in this book, because it's important to know whether Christ is or is not the King of the Jews. Now, Christ has a very good question to ask Pilate. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Now, why would the Lord ask that kind of a question? Because the Lord is asking this. Did this question arise out of your need to know whether I am the king of the Jews? Or are you being prompted by someone else to ask me? Do you see the difference? There is a big difference. Pilate's answer is very revealing. Am I a Jew? 
Why would I care? I don't care if you're the king of the Jews or not. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you unto me. Do you see the answer? No, I was prompted. I don't care who you are. But they have said you are a king. Now, tell me, what have you done? You see the scripture there? What have you done? Jesus answered this. He is addressing the fact that he's talking to someone who doesn't really care if he's a king. He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. But if Pilate had asked, I am, I am needing to know if you are the real king of all, the Lord would have said, I am. But instead he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of, my, of this world, my kingdoms would, have, uh, would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And you may say, well, that means that there is no kingdom. Oh, no, 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 there is a kingdom. It's a kingdom that's just not of this world, but it is right here, right now. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. You see, you see where the direction is going? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. It is for this purpose that I was born, for this purpose that I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He says, yes, I am a king. I am preaching the truth, and my subjects will hear my word. They know it will be true, and they will submit to me. Pilate answers, well, what is truth? Do you see the difference? There is a kingdom, folks. And those who hear Christ have been made alive, are subjects in that kingdom. Christ has a dominion. He has a rule over his kingdom, exactly the way he wants to exercise it. And his almighty power and authority is by design. It is exactly the way he has planned it. The fourth and the last observation in this doxology is when John suddenly breaks into the prophecy and he says, so be it. Amen. He said, even so. Even so. Amen. Now the last section, the new material, is going to be verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. The prophecy of this letter is contained right here. This is the prophecy. This is what John is clearly saying. That's going to be in the future, and it will be judgment in nature. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, there's something that we need to, to deal with here. There are some people that say, oh, wait a minute, every eye shall see him. Surely that's like, that's TV, that's radio, that's, that's satellite stuff. This is what's going to happen. Every eye on the earth is going to see him. No, this is just another way that every human being on earth, no matter what age they were born, and even if they were already dead, they're going to see him. You know why they're going to see him? Because they're going to be standing there in judgment before God to be judged. Some will be on his right hand, some will be on his left hand, but they are going to see him. Every nation is going to be there. Every tongue is going to be there. Every culture, every class of people, no one is going to be excluded. Every type of person. The rich are not going to be excluded. Those who think they're privileged are not going to be excluded. Those who have always been excluded before and have always gotten away with it, they're not going to be excluded. Everything that is hidden will be on the housetops. Everything that they have had that power to avoid, they will not be able to avoid it. 
They will actually call upon rocks to hide them, but they will not be hidden. Do you see? Every eye shall see him. And what's going to happen? They're going to not be hidden anymore. John tells them how he feels about this. He says, even so, amen. Even so. You know, that's like saying this. I want this very much. I want this very much. Amen is like saying this. I want to officially be on record saying, so be it. I want that to be on record. I enthusiastically vote yes on this. Even so, come. Even if it means that the world will hide from Christ as best they can, but they can no longer hide. The prophecy reveals this about the Almighty God. He says this. Christ says this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Do you see how now he identifies himself as God? There's one God. There's Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But he says about himself, I am the first letter of the alphabet. I am the last letter of the alphabet. I am the first. I am the last. I am that one who is. And I am that one who was. And I am that one who is to come. I am the Almighty God. Now, I want you to remember that phrase. And just kind of go to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. The very last one. Chapter 22. And verse number 12. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You know what that is? That's the very same thing that he started with. Sandwiched in between these statements is all the apocalyptic visions. He comes and he says, I am coming and I am going to judge and I am the Alpha and Omega. At the very end, before the closing of this epistle, he says, I am coming, and I am going to judge, and I am the beginning and the end. There is a statement there that says this, I have the authority to do this. I am the beginning, and I am the end. All this is by my hand, and by my rule, and it's by me. So, saint, take comfort. World, take warning. I am coming in judgment. Now, I have a practical application. <laughs> I have just one, but it's not a short one. I want you to listen to the scriptures I'm about to read. I'm not going to tell you what the practical application is. You're going to figure it out, okay? This will be a test. You will be tested at the end of this. All right? I'm going to read about 10 verses from six different places. You have to figure out what they have in common. It's not hard. In Acts chapter 15, verse 18, we read this from the King James Version. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. In Matthew 25, verse 24, when the Lord is teaching about his second coming, he says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. John chapter 17, that night, you know, this is his priestly prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, we read this. For we who have believed enter into rest, as he has said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read six verses. So listen carefully what I want, what you should be listening for. If and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, of course, these people were in exile, but I want you to consider this about your time when the world has exiled you from their presence. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for, for, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in Christ, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. Now lastly, this is from the book of the Apocalypse itself, from chapter 13. It has to do with the beast rising up out of the sea. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now you may say, I think I figured out the commonality between all these verses. But I want you to consider this. I want you to see that the plan of God was made before the foundation of the world. His plan was made. Now I could throw out some really big words here, some really big theological terms. We could talk about... Uh, you know, all different type of ideas and decrees of God. But instead, I'm just going to say it's God's big plan. God's big plan. I'm going to tell you a little short story. Just bear with me. I, I really like good writing. I really like a well-written story. I do. And um, John Steinbeck has written a book called The Grapes of Wrath. Now, it's a well-written story. And I started reading it one day. Is a while back when I was younger, and uh, I just couldn't finish it. I got to a certain point, and I got angry with this guy. I got angry with John Steinbeck. Now he wasn't there. I think he's gone, but I, I really couldn't. He really couldn't hear what I had to say in my heart and mind, and I put the book down. It's not, you know, it's not because it was boring or that it was not well written. It was John Steinbeck is a gifted writer. He can really, really write well. But you see, John Steinbeck has a worldview that is truly anti-God. Truly anti-God. The whole color and the tone and the feel of this book, where the human, uh, where human struggle is made uh, kind of elevated, and the nobility of the human spirit is lifted and elevated. And the idea that we can elevate the human spirit and you know how you do it? You have to make God a figment of your imagination. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just stressing. I'm not making that up. There's a section in there where he identifies preachers and what they do. And he says, and he kind of comes up with this word. And I'm sure that he didn't make up the word. I'm sure that people from the 40s used it. He called it the big shebang. Oh, and this is the big shebang. Okay. And after I read that paragraph, I just put it down and I stopped reading. Because the big shebang has to do with this. What is the big picture? The big picture. What can men do to save themselves? 
to make their story worth living. To make the idea that I can go on another day. Why? Because men are noble. Men are good. You need to put behind you the idea of this fabrication of that there is a God that can help you. You need to help yourself. Now, he's a good writer, but you know what? He's an ungodly man. And the big shebang is something that I do want to look at. I want to look at the big picture of what God is doing here. It has to do with the God who was and who is and who is to come. There is a big picture here. Let me tell you who the hero of this big shebang is. The story. And you know what? Uh, I heard this professor in college say one time, his story is history. That was a play on words. I really liked it. His story is history. Mm -hmm. And when you look at history and you look at the book and you look at the Bible, you see that this is the story of God. This is a story of His glory. This is a story that what He wants to accomplish. And He has decided by His grace to make you a part of it. Mm -hmm. You are going to be a part of it. You are going to be one of the living stones. We have been grafted into Christ. The Spirit of the living God walks within us like He did in the, in the paradise. This book is going to bring all things back together. What was lost in paradise is going to be regained. All the, the, the very tree of life the very tree of life is going to be brought back into the picture. Everything's going to be wrapped up. What a story this is. Mm. And you say, well, man, what is, that, what is that tree going to look like? What tree have you eaten from that gave you life? Is that such a mystery? Is that so hard to understand that he was hung on a tree and that we live by believing in Christ? Mm. I'm telling you that God looked at this plan and it was a good plan. And when the Almighty who knows all things and has omnipresence and omniscience, when he says, this plan is not just good, it is very good. Mm -hmm. It is very good. And then he says, I am done with this. Now, when he says he's done, he's done with what? Just creating plants and people? No, he's done with everything from the beginning, from one who was and is and is to come. He's everything. And you know what he does? He rests. What in the world would the Almighty have to do with resting? Even now, we celebrate the fact that we rest. We dedicate ourselves, one out of seven, to come and rest in Christ. Right here, we are celebrating the fact that God is God in control of all things. We come to worship the Almighty, to rest in Christ, to take this rest and say, this is a very good thing. I thought about those trees, about the tree of life, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and about how God has said, enjoy all the trees of the garden. Enjoy them all. They all have their wonderful fruits. Their roots deep down into the soil, and they provide fruit. Isn't it strange that when Adam fell, that he didn't say, Adam, you're cursed. What did he curse? He cursed the ground. He cursed the ground that holds the roots of all these trees. And now when they grow up, what? What did the Lord say? Well, there are good trees, there are bad trees. A good tree produces good, bad tree produces bad fruit. It goes down into the very heart and nature of who a man is. God used to walk in the garden of a man's heart, but now it produces nothing but thorns and briars. One day there will be no more curse. There will be 
a garden and paradise regained. And God will walk in the heart of a man because his heart has been made changed. He has given him a new heart, a new place. Out of our bellies will flow rivers of living water. You say, well, are you saying that the tree of life is within us? Is not the Holy Spirit within us? Is not Christ in us? Mm -hmm. It is His tree. He has planted His roots in our heart. These things are coming to a close at the end of the apocalypse, the end of the visions. All these things are being wrapped up. It's going to be a complete story. And I end with this example. We are to learn these things so that we would have the bravery and the courage to do what is right in this present evil world. There was a man by the name of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was burned at the stake because he refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. Now, I don't know how much work that is. It surely can't be that hard. Take a little bit of incense, put a little bit of fire on it, put it in front of an image of the Roman emperor, and boom, you're out of there. You don't even have to say, well, I didn't really believe that he is God, but, it, you know, it got me out of the fire, didn't it? You see, that's Machiavellian. You know what that means, right? It's like, well, I'll just do a little bit of evil. That good may come from it. Mm. Really? Let me tell you about Polycarp. Did you know that Polycarp was one of the very first elders in the church of Smyrna? And you say, well, when? When was that? Like in the 1500s? No. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. Mm. When this letter was written... No doubt Polycarp was one of the recipients of that letter. Let me read to you what's been recorded about Polycarp. He said this, and this is, this, this is not in the scriptures, of course, it's just history. He says, 80 and 6 years I have served him, he means Christ, and he has done no wrong to me. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season, and after a little while it's quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. He was then burned at the stake, even though he was given opportunity. He said, all you have to do is this simple act and you can walk away. But instead, he said in his final words, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this honor, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. What little thing he could have done to escape. And yet, even now, we read his words about the courage of a Christian who did not deny his Lord. Now, what are we to do with this? I want you to be courageous. I want you to be, I want you to be brave. Because there are plagues all around us. There will be opportunities for you to do the little thing to escape the punishment that the world has to offer to follow Christ. Take every opportunity you have to honor your God, to live for His glory. Mm -hmm. There is no other opportunity that we have right now in this world mm -hmm. other than it is now while we live in this flesh that we can resist this type of sin. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in the future, 
Sin will be quarantined in the lake of fire. It'll be gone. You'll never be tempted again. But now we have this unique opportunity to serve God and to live for His glory. Now is the time. Now is the opportunity. It is our day. Every, you know, it's like, well, look at the whole creation. It begins and it ends. Well, just look at the day. You wake up and you go to sleep. That's a little bit of a, a whole lifetime right there, isn't it? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Every time you go to sleep, it's a little bit of a death. Mm. And what about you in your life right now? Every temptation that you have is this short opportunity to serve God. Mm-hmm. Everything you do. This is what we need. Christ is ruling in his kingdom exactly the way he has planned to rule it. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the way he desires to rule it. Mm-hmm. I would like to read this uh, benediction to you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood mm-hmm. and made us a kingdom, priest to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. Let's Go to the Lord in prayer, and then after we pray, I would like to sing the doxology to the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Our Holy Father, we now ask that your grace be provided to your people. May we understand the big shebang. May we understand the great purpose for which you have created us, that we may be involved, Father, in glorifying your name. You are the real hero of this story. Our Christ is the one that should have our eyes lifted up to him. It is his story. It is the glory of God and how he came to say, I am your great reward. And he is. Oh Lord, you are the great reward. There is none better than having you walk in the garden of our heart. And Father, we pray, may you give us this insight and give us the courage. May you give us the grace by having our hearts understand that we might, with our love for you, serve you by resisting sin, evil, malice, envy, strife. May these things be rooted out of us. Mm -hmm. And may the curse one day be no more. We look forward to that day, Lord, when you come back. Though the world hide its face from you, we will say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.